Uh, as Matt said, we're continuing in our series on Judges, so I'm going to be reading from Judges 16. Now, if you've got the Bibles in the pews in front of you, that's um, page 204, and I'm reading the whole chapter. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson's here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, At dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there until the middle of the night. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Uh, just in case if you didn't see it in the footnote, it's um, 13 kilograms of silver. It's not bad. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how we can, you, you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistine brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string when it comes to close to the flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him up with them. Then the, with men hidden in the room, she called to Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arm as if they were threads. Delilah said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me, telling me, uh, tell me now how you can be tied up. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened them with the pin. Again she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke and, from his sleep and pulled the, pin out of, pulled the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, 
How can you say, I love you, when you won't confide in me? This is the third time that you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved and my, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back just once more. He's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to come and shave his, the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, <laughs> I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They, they sent him to, to grinding the grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistine assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste to our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood among the pillar, sorry, when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to, his serv to the servant that had, uh, held his hand, "Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them." Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof uh, were about three thousand men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just, as you, just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the central pillars on which the Predator Temple stood, bracing himself against them his right hand against one, his left hand against the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and on all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than while he lived. 
Then his brothers and his father woke, uh, sorry, his father's whole family went down to him to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshatol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. Thank you, Rami. Please do have that open in front of you. And I would probably encourage you to flick back to chapter 13. We're going to cover again the story of Samson, second time around. We looked at it again uh, previously three weeks ago, but we'll pick it up again tonight. Before we begin, I'm going to pray. Our good and our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. And in these strange stories and incredible stories of the Old Testament, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will help make it clear to us what it means to follow in your way, speak clearly through me, and be at work amongst your people here and across the screen. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So he was perhaps the smartest man to ever have lived. By 18 months old, he could read the New York Times. By age three... This guy could speak three languages fluently. By the time he was seven, he'd self-taught himself eight different new languages. It is predicted that he had an IQ of 250. Right? To put that in a bit of context, Einstein only had an IQ of 200. He applied for Harvard at the age of nine. He passed the entrance exam, but they told him he was too young. So he had to wait till he was 11. Then they let him in. He was the youngest ever graduate at 14. He started part-time lecturing at 16. One of his lecturers, uh, one of the professors, Comstock, said, I predict that this young man will be a great astronomical mathematician. He will evolve new theories and invent new ways of calculating astronomical phenomena. William Sidus was his name. All got no idea, right? And that is because he threw it all away. He threw it all away. He, he found himself in prison a couple of years later for rioting at a protest. After that, he gets out and he didn't do any of that kind of work anymore. He consigned himself to just pursuing his own personal interests uh, and found himself at 44, consigned to menial work office in, in New York doing clerical jobs and then died of a brain hemorrhage that was hereditary. Started strong. Started strong. Had all the gifting, all the great potential, all the calling, but he threw it all away. Now, I heard that story from another preacher named Abraham Kuravilla, and it does have some of the most eerie, eerie similarities to the Samson story. Tonight, we're going to explore the story... Uh, Again, as I said, we're going to explore it a, a second time because we looked at it kind of in total three weeks ago. And we were looking at pretty much Samson from the outside, particularly what God was doing in and through Samson, what God was doing. And we saw that God was going to try to break away the Israelites from the Philistines because they're not crying out anymore. It's like they were uh, not under the threat of extermination, but assimilation into uh, the Philistine way, becoming like the world around them. That's what Sermon 1 was about, Samson from the outside. 
Tonight, we look at Samson from the inside. The man who he was and the man who he wanted to be. And as we explore this, uh, his life and ultimately his decline, we're going to ask ourselves, what throws him off course? What throws us off course? What are some of the threats that come across our faith? What can drag us away from God? What does it look like for us to persevere in our faith? How to not throw away our calling as followers of Jesus. So let's begin again from 13 verse 1. It starts as it always does. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now we've read that phrase six times now. Six times, again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It always marks a transition to a new judge. You know when it's new, uh, a new section of the story. But Samson has a lot to do with the eyes. What he sees, what he desires is going to come up again and again. And what do we read here? That Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Samson's character very much symbolizes uh, Israel. For Israel, they're not doing something that's evil in their eyes. They might think that they're going okay, but it's evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I think this is something incredible to teach us about both the definition and the deception of sin. The definition and the deception. Because Israel, as I was saying, is probably not feeling like they're doing all that bad. But from God's perspective, it's evil. In his eyes, it's evil. Now, we often think about sin as rebelling against God. True, that is definitely the case here. To put that in context, it means the Israelites, we decide what is right, not God. We decide what's right in our eyes. That's very much the language of our culture today, right? You do you, you decide what's right and what's wrong. What feels right to you, what looks right to you, that's the way to go but it may be completely contrary to God's way. That's what sin is about. And why would we do that? Because sin is so deceptive. It is so deceitful. Because it's fun. It's enticing. Right? We wouldn't do it if it wasn't. That's why we do it. But it becomes deceptive and um, enticing Because we also see everybody else doing it. We get caught in kind of a group denial. It looks right in our eyes. It looks right in our friends' eyes. You think about examples like drinking to excess or thinking truth is relative, a very liberal sexual ethic, whatever it may be, uh, gossiping, or like just good things that become ultimate. Good things that become ultimate are the idols of our life. Work, family, money, success, relationship, housing, whatever it may be. Good things, right? They're good things. But when they become ultimate, that's when it becomes an idol. And there's a very, very fine line, or there can be between those two things. And it's deceptive because it looks right in our eyes, but maybe not in God's eyes. And I think the 17th century Puritan writer, his name is Thomas Brooks, he says this, Satan paints sin in virtue's colors. Satan paints sin in virtue's colors. And I think it makes us ask the question, with with whose eyes do we view the world? With whose eyes do we view ourselves, Our actions, our thoughts, our decisions. Is it our eyes or is it the Lord's eyes? 
Friends, we need to be constantly evaluating through reflection on the Bible, through prayer, with our Christian brothers and sisters. Are we rationalizing our sin? Are we thinking it's okay? We're viewing it with our eyes, not with the Lord's eyes. Because when we view it with the Lord's eyes, sin looks very, very ugly. And we see it as ugly because we're seeing it as he does. We just see it as being destructive and being evil. And when that's the case, we turn to God. We find ourselves embraced by the grace of God. uh, And we go on in his strength. Now, Samson does not do this, though. That's not the kind of life that, that he lived. He very much symbolizes, embodies Israel. And as we... Uh, go into his story. Let me kind of remind you about who the man is. Uh, when we looked at chapter 13 last week, uh, three weeks ago, uh, we read at the beginning that it was a very miraculous birth, out of nowhere, uh, in a sense. And the son, this man, who be- boy who becomes Samson, is giving a very special and particular calling. So if you have a look, verse 4, the angel comes to this barren woman, says, you're going to give a son, It says, now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. And he will take the lead or he'll begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, we're probably pretty unfamiliar with that Nazarite term. Uh, We don't really follow that today. It's from the Old Testament. Now, there's lots of things in the Old Testament we do, but this one is a bit particular. It's about people who were consecrated to the Lord for a very particular time, for a particular task. And you can read about it in Numbers chapter 6. And the vow has three main components. The first component is you can't drink anything fermented, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. You can't drink anything fermented. The second thing is you can't touch anything dead. Humans, or in the presence of someone who dies or an animal. Nothing dead and no cutting of the hair. So the hair would grow long uh, on their, their, their head, obviously. And then there's two unusual things that goes on in Judges here. Because the angel gives uh, the woman two other ones. She says, no unclean food. Now that's the case for every Israelite, right? So to say, okay, you have to eat no unclean food, that's just showing how far Israel have gone. And then the final one is that Samson is to be a Nazarite from the womb to the tomb. His whole life. Usually it's temporary, but this guy is set aside for his whole life. From the beginning, he is set apart. He is special. And we see he's gifted. He has a particular calling. And that very much symbolizes Israel. As an Israelite read this, and as we read it, being familiar with the Old Testament, we begin to see Samson as a bit of like a mirror, a mirror of Israel. Like You know in those movies and you see someone and they look at a picture or they look at a reflection of themselves, but then someone else finds their way into the picture? There's one from The Lion King uh, 2 where Kovu looks at himself and sees Scar. That's kind of what goes on here, but in reverse. Samson, sorry, we look at Samson and we see Israel. But then as we begin to look at Israel, Israel then fades out and we perhaps begin to see ourselves. So with that, let's work through Samson's life. The life of a man who does what is right in his own eyes. 
Now, we're going to work through it fairly quickly because we're familiar mostly with the story from a couple of weeks ago. But let's have a look from verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. So Samson begins his adult life. Verse 1, he walks down to Timnah. He's in Philistine land and he saw, he sees a young Philistine woman. When he returned to his father and mother, he says, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Demands. His father and mother replied, Isn't there a more acceptable woman among our relatives or among our people? Must you go for the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Basically, Samson, don't forgo your relationship with God. This is about faith. Marry those of the same faith. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Samson is captivated by this young Philistine woman. He doesn't turn away. He takes a second take, a third take. He desires her. No whips, no buts, no consideration of what might happen, no listening to the voice of his parents. No, get her for me. And the, the, the verse that kind of just summarizes Samson's life, his predicament so well, is the end of verse 3. Get her for me. She's right. She's the right one for me. In a more literal Hebrew translation, she is right in my eyes. Samson's calling and gifting is to deliver Israel, right? He's not so concerned on delivering Israel. He's more uh, um, from the Philistines. He's more concerned with marrying the Philistines. He has no concern for his allegiance to God, it seems, or his people. He's doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, but is right in his eyes. Then we move on in the story and we get that incident with a lion. When you have a look at verses 5 and 6, the lion comes towards him, rushes him. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson and he, uh, he tears the lion as if tearing a young goat. Now, it's been three weeks since I saw that the first time. I'm still no clearer on why that's the case. Although breaking a toothpick seems far more appropriate to me, but... I guess they didn't have toothpicks. And they move on. Sometime later, he went back to marry her. He turned aside and looked at the lion's carcass. It's been dead for a little while now. And he saw, here's Samson's eyes again. He saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands. He ate as he went along. He gave some to his parents. He saw, he scooped, he ate, and he went. But what's Samson just done? He's touched a dead body, hasn't he? Remember, this guy is to be a Nazarite for life. The second aspect of the Nazarite vow is you cannot touch anything dead. He's killed the lion, and now he's gone and he's scooped out the honey. According to Numbers, he's meant to go to the temple, but no, not Samson. He's, he's seen his bride and he's going. That's where he shall go. No care for God's calling. Now, it can seem a little bit ridiculous, right? It seems a little bit silly. Like, why would he go touch something dead for just a taste? Just a taste of honey. Why throw away his commitment to God? Like, who in the might Ryan would do that? Actually, that has been me. Going for a moment of pleasure just for a taste turning our back on God's word for a fleeting moment of delight that just fades away. 
But I 100% know I'm not just talking about myself. All of us at some point have gone for the fleeting pleasures of this world to satisfy us for just a moment. But in that process, we degrade our relationship with God and perhaps with others. Momentary fleeting pleasures that are sinful will have consequences. They will. We might not see it in the moment. We might not see it uh, and connect it to whatever it was. But they will have consequences. They certainly did for Samson. Now, as Christians, we're not against desire. In no way are we against desire. We're not against pleasure. We're not against experiencing blessing. God created those things. He delights them. He wants us to experience those things. But he designed them. He knows how we should go about them best. And he longs for us to experience them to the full. He sets us boundaries, but those boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. Now, the next scene is the wedding. He's gone to this, uh, this woman to marry her, and he does that riddle. Remember the riddle with the, uh, the 30 Philistine men? Now, to give you the overview, he just makes a bet, says, oh, you can't get, you can't get the answer to this bet, um, which is out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. The Philistines take him up on the bet, and if they win, Samson's got to give them 30 articles of clothing. If Samson wins, they've got to give him 30 articles of clothing. Right? Now, they can't figure it out, so they blackmail the new wife. They blackmail her, and then she comes to Samson. Then Samson's wife threw himself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. Remember that. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't explained it even to my father or mother, he replied. Why should I explain it to you? She cried for the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She turned to the riddle. He told the people. They find it out. Samson, now full of anger, has to go. and He kills 30 random people, 30 random Philistines uh, to get their clothes. And gives it to them. He leaves in a huff, raging with his anger again. But his anger and his rage, his impulses there, they don't stop. When you look through chapter 15, it's uncontrolled rage now. It's an appetite for revenge. It grows worse. He burns with anger and he burns the fields. He finds himself alone in a cave. And even the Israelites don't care for him anymore. Judah, who's meant to be one of the best tribes, they just want to hand him over. They tie him up, but Samson breaks a bondage. Attacks, kills 30 Philistine men with a donkey's jaw. And remember, he kind of composes that song. There was like a rap with a donkey's head. I beat him like bread with a donkey's head. Thousand wound up dead. I had to do it again. I made it up. So. But he picks up the donkey's head. But what's he doing? He's touching something dead again. Ah, I did it once. Nothing happened. It didn't hurt. I'll do it again. This time, though, he celebrates it. That's the difference here. He's begun to not only not care about sin, he's now trying to celebrate it. And as you get to chapter 16, he just gets more and more brazen. Chapter 16, verse 1. One day, Samson went to Gaza. Now, Gaza is the capital of Philistine. He's literally in the heart of enemy territory. In the heart of enemy territory... What's he going to do there? Where he saw his eyes again, a prostitute. He saw her. He went in and he spent the night. 
Right? No prizes for guessing what happened there. He goes in. It's his uncontrolled lust. His uncontrolled lust perhaps is sent in there. It's uncontrolled desires. What is right in his own eyes. Now, of course, remember from last sermon three weeks ago that God is in and throughout all these things. Even though Samson is being very sinful, God's going to use it for his good purposes. He's divorcing Israel from the Philistines, taking them away from their apathy and allegiance to the world for something that is going to be good for them. But at this point, I want to draw out two particular things. Two particular things about Samson uh, that could potentially be us too. Because remember, Samson is mirroring Israel and perhaps us. And the first one is that Samson is impulsive. Uncontrolled impulsiveness, a lack of self-control, consumed with his desire. Now, his ones may be our ones. His ones were lust, pleasure, greed, revenge. But we also may have other ones. Other ways we're prone to be impulsive, controlled just by our desires. Now, in Proverbs 25, it says this, which is particularly helpful. It says, like a city without walls is broken through. So a person is who lacks self-control. A person who lacks self-control is going to be ravaged. The self-control is like the protection from those bad things. If we don't have that self-control, perhaps we're going to end up like Samson. Now, of course, there is hope in Jesus. There is always hope in Jesus. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So we need to continue to lean into Jesus, to walk in step with the Spirit. But seeing, being self-controlled, not being impulsive, driven by our desires, is crucial. If we're not, it could ruin us. Jesus is greater for sure. That's a big threat for us. The second one is compromising. Samson is constantly compromising. He's compromising on his calling for his faith. He treats God word, God's word casually, like I was saying a few times, it's like, well, what does it hurt if I do it again? Sleeps with women here, sleeps with one there, touch a dead thing there, touch another thing dead there. We too can treat God's grace so cheaply. We don't see a consequence of doing an ungodly thing. We know that God will forgive us, which, forgive us, which is true. But we cannot compromise again and again. Compromise our faith. Because if we continue to do that, we'll end up having no faith at all. The impulse of a lack of self-control and compromising our convictions in faith are, are two constant threats. I know them for myself. I know them from chatting with some of you. And it's just a human experience. But now we get back to this story in Samson in chapter 16. Now, if you're somewhat familiar with Samson in before this series, you probably were familiar with his strength and then his relationship with Delilah. Now, so far, it's been very much about Samson's eyes, about what he's seeing, his desire. That's what's been on display. That's what's been leading him astray. But here, the focus shifts. It changes. It shifts towards Samson's heart, to what is actually deep within. Have a look with me from verse 4. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Up until this point, there's been three other women. This is the fourth woman. All three other women have been associated with the, word, the verb see. This one is love. 
is different. It's now the fourth woman, but it's revealing something new about him. And the name Delilah is also significant here, because in the Hebrew it sounds like nighttime. If you remember what I said about Samson's name three weeks ago, Samson's name sounds like sun. So Sunny Boy is now meeting the night lady. He's lying in night's bed and is going to be his downfall. From verse 5, the rulers of the Philistines went to her, this is Delilah, and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. To give you a bit of an idea, that's about $115,000 worth of silver, right? Big, big money is on offer here. And these are the rulers. These are the big boys, the head honchos who are coming to her. It's certainly very enticing. So Samson delighted, let me give this little dance. It was a bit that Rami had read for us. Delilah basically just goes to him and brazen as, like straight to the point, tell me the secret of your strength so that you can be tied up. Samson doesn't run away at that point. He just tells her a lie. He starts with, tie me up with seven bowstrings that have never been dried and I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah does it, but it doesn't work. Samson gets bound, but he breaks free. So Delilah says, you've made a fool of me. You've lied to me. Come now, tell me how you may be tired. And Samson does something very, very odd. He stays there. He stays with this woman. And he tells her another lie. The next one is about ropes. New, use new ropes that have never been used before. Then I'll be as weak as any other man. Same thing happens again. Same story, same dance. Then he gives another one. This time, tie my seven braids into the loom. Oh, we're getting close to the hair here. Getting closer, but still the same response. And then we get verse 15, which says, after it goes awry again, Samson breaks free. Delilah says to him, how can you say I love you when you don't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. An alternate translation there, a bit more literal to the Hebrew, is he told her his whole heart. He told her his whole heart. No razor has ever been used on my head. Oh, sorry, I lost my spot here. And no longer has ever been used on my head because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I'll become as weak as any other man. Delilah knows now. She says to the Philistine rulers, he's told me everything. His whole heart has been out on display now. I know, come back. They come, they give her the silver and then he lay, goes to sleep on her, on, her, on her lap. Like what overconfidence. She shaves it. And they come and they bind him, gouge out his eyes. He's left blind and enslaved man. He's completely ruined. The person he thought loved him 
had no love for him at all. In many ways, Delilah is very representative of the nations around them, representative of the idols, constantly enticing Israel, the promise of, presti- the promise of um, good things, delight, enticing the Israelites away. But all it does is enslave them. Again, this is just another picture for us of idolatry, for us, you and I today. This is what it does. Promises so much. Fleeting pleasures will be there. It'll be true. But ultimately, they enslave us. They let us down. Now, it's interesting to think about the motivations here. The motivations for Delilah and Samson. Delilah's motivations are pretty simple, I think. Greed. But then the second one is prestige. She knows that the heads, right, the five rulers of the Philistines are out to get Samson. So if if she hands him over... She's going to be a natural heroine. Greed, prestige are her motivators, it seems. But what about Samson? What's he doing there? What's his motivation? Now, it says he loved her. That's certainly what's going on here. Perhaps he's got this overconfident, you know, love is blinding for Delilah. But it's more than that. There's that repeated line that came up every single time. Then I'll become as weak as any other man. That is, this is actually his desire all along. He's consistently been throwing away his Nazarite vow, consistently throwing away the calling that God has placed upon him. And at this point, he doesn't want it anymore. He just wants to be like any other man. That is why he displays his heart to her. This is really what his heart desires, to fade away from his calling. He probably doesn't hate God. He just wants to be like everybody else. Now, there's a phrase that's going around in the journalism, social media at the moment, of the, uh, currently called quiet quitting. Anyone heard of quiet quitting? I know, some of you have. No? Thank you, Graham. Love the enthusiasm. Quiet quitting. It's basically a phrase about workers stopping to putting the extra effort in at work, doing the minimum, not picking up uh, extra time, kind of just slowly doing less and less and less. And recently I've come across two articles written by Christians, one from the US and one from Perth, that talks about the danger for us as Christians about quietly quitting our faith. Now this is a constant threat for us no matter the the season, no matter the era, to quietly quit our faith. But it's not loud. It's not this big fireworks display of we're leaving the church. It's slow. It is gradual. And it typically looks the same. Not always, but it's the cares, it's the desires, it's the deceits of the world that just entangle us, slowly but surely. We end up spending less time with God, we spend less time with his people, less time in his word. Weekly turns to fortnightly, turns to monthly, turns to occasionally. End up doing less in ministry, engaging with our Christian brothers and sisters, and suddenly we're gone. Obviously, that's not you, you're here, Right? But quiet quitting is always a threat. It's not angry emails. It's not distaste. It is desire to be like any other man, to be like any other woman. Friends, please don't quite quit your faith. Please don't quite quit your faith. Don't wander off unnoticed. Perhaps your friends at church, you may feel like they won't notice you. 
You may feel like the pastors won't notice you. We try our best. We fail, right? At times, we try our best. But God always notices. God always holds you to lights in his children, calling you to persevere. The Holy Spirit will be in you, calling you to persevere. But we need to ask ourselves the question, I will be sucked into the charms of the world, sucked away slowly to then quietly quit our faith. Or will we stay the course? Now, the solution to that problem is always continue to gather with his people and continue to come before Jesus, returning to an active faith in God. And that is perhaps where the final scene of the Samson story leads us. We get a glimpse of it. In the final scene after this section from verse 23 and onwards, it's pictured as a battle. A battle between Yahweh, our God, Israel's God, and Dagon, the Philistine God. Now the Philistines are praising their God, Dagon. Wow, you're amazing. You've brought us victory um, over Yahweh's deliverer. You've delivered Samson into our hands. They bring out Samson to entertain them, do a dance, something celebrating how good Dagon is and how rubbish Samson is and therefore how rubbish God is. But God is about to show them how wrong that they are. Because the Philistines, they think they've won. They've shorn off his hair, but then they let it grow back. They're not aware of who Yahweh is. They are not aware that God saves the unexpected, like the unexpected left-handed Ehud. Left-handed is this one. Left-handed Ehud. They are unaware that God can bring victory through nature like Barak and Deborah did, or their story. They are unaware that power is made perfect in weakness like the story of Gideon. And they are unaware that chapter 13, verse 7 has already been written. That Samson will be a Nazarite until his death. And I think Tim Keller puts it really well. He says, Samson's hair growing back is not meant to make us think Ah, his hair's returned. He'll be strong again because his strength lies in his hair. But rather, the Philistines think his strength is gone because his vow has been broken. But they don't understand that God's work and God's power are not constrained and are not contingent upon a servant's obedience. And so Samson, in that moment, he puts his hands against the pillars, arms stretched wide. And for the first time, perhaps, he calls out in genuine faith. Now, it's a personal revenge kind of play, that's for sure. But Samson is now claiming that his strength is in God and God alone. And in that moment, God gives him the strength back and he topples the temple and the Philistine leaders are destroyed. And Samson then completes his mission of beginning to deliver Israel. And it's here that Samson finds the faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. In the hall of faith. We haven't mentioned this as we've gone through Sam in the Judges series so far, but there's a section that is given to the Judges. After the writer has been talking about the faith of Abraham, Moses, and a whole host of others, he says, What more shall we say then? I do not have more time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Japheth, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administer justice and gain what was promised, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed enemies. Samson's faith was there, a glimpse even at the end. 
But what is calling loud and clear is the grace of God. The grace of God that never left, that keeps growing back. And perhaps the most hopeful verse in the whole narrative is chapter 16, verse 22. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Even when it seemed like the enemy had won, even when it seemed like Sam's had literally thrown it all away, thrown away his gifting, thrown away his calling, thrown away his relationship with God, God had not fully left him. God's grace was going to grow again, like the hair on his head. Even in the depths of Dagon's temple, in the depths of the enemy's lair, in the depravity of life, God can still be at work there. God's grace is sufficient for Samson, and God's grace is sufficient for you, for us. Now, there are so many ways in which the Samson story points us to Jesus. And in a moment, we're going to share in communion together. And Nadine is going to take us through uh, seeing a bunch of the ways that Samson does lead to Jesus, how he points us to Christ, how Christ ultimately fulfills him. Now, sure, there's many, there's much more differences than there are similarities, but it points us to the table. And friends, God's grace keeps growing. It is never too late to come to him. It's never too late to return. Some of us in this moment may feel like you're in Dagon's temple. You may feel like you're there. Maybe you have been there. Maybe you will be there in the future. Stuffed it up, losing it all, lost it all. But God's grace is there. God's grace is still coming, still growing like the hairs on your head. And we have the blessing, the opportunity to turn, repent, embrace the grace of our God. It is completely undeserved. That is not in question here. It is completely undeserved, but it's completely there. Through your worries, through your failings, embrace the Lord Jesus. Fall at the foot of the cross. His grace is sufficient for you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that you'd save a wretch like me that you'd save a wretch like us. We thank you that even in the darkness of the Samson story, that you still never left him. You never fully abandoned him and that your mission was complete. We ask and we see a beautiful picture, a more glorious picture in the Lord Jesus. And we ask that you help us continue to walk in your grace. Help us to walk in step with your spirit. We ask that you will get all the blessing. You will get all the glory and that we will be blessed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.